0: Good. I'm not sure. If... What's on? Ah, there we go. Well, uh, <clears throat> last Lord's Day, in coordination with the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we looked at Revelation 2, 8-11, through 11, and the suffering church in Sardis in modern-day Turkey, where, by the way, the Church of Christ is still suffering government scrutiny and restrictions and imprisonments in some of its various Christian congregations. I suggested last Sunday morning two things that the Church of Smyrna says to us today in the 21st century. First, the first being, That your confession as a Christian puts you and I, at least potentially, in the same uh, conflict uh, that the Church of Schwerner was in with their their culture, which was dominated then by emperor worship. That's because your commitment and allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his holy word, the Bible, puts you potentially at odds with the world and with the culture uh, that we live in today. Now, the second thing uh, I pointed out was the fact that the church in the United States, which has enjoyed uh, peace and protection from our government, supported by our culture, for almost 250 years, is historically unprecedented. The hard fact is the vast majority of Christians throughout the world are looked down upon, are frequently disadvantaged or even uh, cruelly persecuted to one degree or another. Uh, in Nigeria, uh, which um, we heard a little bit about this morning, uh, over 1,300 Christians were martyred between 18 and 19, uh, 2018 and 2019. In Central African Republic, um, it was 945. In China alone, 5,500 churches were attacked or closed. Uh, 2,000 in Angola. The one organization that tracks these things lists 50 countries around the world that openly persecute Christians. Now, in the lobby, I think, did, did that happen? Yes. Oh, so um, uh, our great secretary was able to do this. You will find uh, on the bulletin board, or, you call it the lobby or the narthex. I need to get this straight. Marthex. Narthex, all right. We're, we're narthex folk around here. So in the narthex. On the bulletin board, you'll find um, a a map, a colored map, um, that shows um, with some lists that show the nations where Christians are most uh, cruelly persecuted. So stop and look at that sometime to inform your prayers. Well, all of that by way of review. So having left off last week with a look at Smyrna, the suffering church, this evening, I want to press on to consider the sufficiency of Christ moving from the suffering of church to the sufficiency of Christ. For the Lord did not leave the saints in the church of Shmurna comfortless, nor us either. Um, now, how did, Christ, uh, how did Christ present himself? I'm still not getting it. Ah, here we go. Um, how did Christ present his loving sufficiency to the persecuted Shmurnians? Um, how does he express his loving sufficiency to us today for you and I, for as his covenant people, are as much the apple of his eye uh, and the object of his care uh, and, and as ever was the church in Smyrna. so let's start by reading the text or rereading the text found in uh, Revelation chapter two verses eight uh, through eleven Revelation chapter two uh, verses eight. From uh, 8 through 11. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church of Shemirna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Well, we're going, to, um, we're going to look at the sufficiency of Christ by answering the questions, who he is, what he knows, and what he's doing. Uh, first then, who he is, and you see how he identifies himself in verse 8. Uh, remember how I pointed out that the first words by which our Lord identifies himself in each of the seven churches are very important. They're very important clues about who he is and, and, and how that particular church in their particular circumstance should regard him. Um, to Sardis, verse 8, he identifies himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. Words very similar to what he gave John in the, cha- in the first chapter, where he says, I uh, am the first and the last and the living one. Now, to say that Jesus is the first and the last, or the alpha, or the omega, or the beginning and the end, are all expressions which should remind us that the Lord is the unchangeable one. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. For you and I change and, and decay, frighten, and threaten us on every side. And they can deeply discourage us. Uh, we worry about things. We worry about changes. What about our health? Our health. What about our country? What about this? There's no end of things that we can see changing all around us. Uh, but for the Lord Jesus, that's not an issue at all because He's eternal and He is unchangeable. He was there at the beginning and He will be there at the end. He is always there for us and always the same toward us. There will never uh, be any change in his mind toward us. He'll never turn away from us. He'll never cast us aside. He'll, he'll never suddenly discover something that he'd never known about us before and he'll think, oh, no, not that. That's, that's the end. He'll never do that because he's changed us and he knows everything to begin with. Uh, uh, so, again, uh, he is also, verse 8, the one who died and came to life. He's unchangeable, but he also is one who died and came to life. Again, chapter 1, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. Uh, A title, all of which reminds us that Jesus is also not only the unchangeable one, but the victorious one who conquered death for us. Now, neither the emperor of Rome nor any other human government at any time in any place could or would do that for you. Not the social scientist or the politician or the university professor or the medical person or the Nobel Prize winner. None of them and none of them can regenerate us and take away our hearts of stone and give us new spiritual hearts. They can do nothing for your souls and only some have done much for your bodies. But our Lord Christ came to die for us, to to bear uh, the weight of our sin, become our Savior, to change us and to make us new creations, to turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children, to cause uh, husbands to cherish their wives and wives to love and honor their husbands, to soften our hearts uh, toward the poor and the disadvantages, to cause us to to hate what is evil and to love what is good. And it all starts with the Gospel. It all starts at the cross. All grace, pours out from the cross and Jesus saves. He can change our hearts. He can change the heart of any family and any person in any church in any community and it starts with our conversion. Well, uh, there's more. Uh, there's also this fact that he, uh, he knows, oops, you know what? This is not good. Here he is. He also knows what he's doing. We know who he is He knows, we also know what he's doing. He says in verse 9, notice, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So, the church of Smyrna is assured that Jesus, the risen Lord, knows and is well aware of their circumstances, their tribulation, uh, their poverty, when in fact he regards them to be rich, and the slander that they're enduring. He does not miss anything. It does not skip his attention for the slightest moment. We are not to suppose that God is unaware of anything in our lives. Nothing could be clearer in the Scriptures from one side of the book uh, to the other than the fact that the Sovereign Lord knows and sees all things uh, from the heavens the Lord looked down and see at all mankind. From his dwelling face he watches all who, who live on earth. He who formed the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Psalm 33. And remember this, that the Christians in Shmirna were, were not the first ones to, to discover or suffer uh, a discrimination or even death at the hands of men. Our Lord Jesus Christ preceded them, didn't he? Uh, He was sacrificed for them. He paved the way for them and personally understands uh, their sorrows and and their sufferings and their difficulties. He is the sympathetic savior, a a personal God. You understand, that's a great offense to modern man, that he's a personal God. Um, And and he's experienced firsthand the scorn and the persecution and the slander and the hatred and the torture and the death, not to mention... Weariness and sickness and the miseries of this life, all of which represent what what, what theologians call um, uh, the humiliation of Christ. Our Lord might have avoided all of that. Uh, in, in, in fact, one of the big reasons why Christians don't give in to the temptation to compromise their good confession and faith is because Christ himself didn't do it. Jesus, the man, could have... He could have backed off from the the sharp criticism, the righteous criticism that he loaded upon the Pharisees that so inflamed them. Uh, He he might have made nice to them and and compromised a little bit with them. Even in his trial uh, before the Sanhedrin and, and before Pilate, Jesus had a last opportunity to avoid what he knew would be a horrific and torture and suffering. A brief word to the Sanhedrin. A denial, maybe some weasel words of of conditional phrases regarding his claim to be Messiah. Some equivocation, slight equivocation regarding his divinity. That's all it would have taken. Pilate, for all of his fear of the Jewish leaders, would have never dared to condemn him to death if Jesus had so much as tipped his hat, so to speak, to the emperor in Rome. But that's unthinkable, isn't it? It would have been a complete repudiation of the truth. It would have been a complete complete betrayal of the Father and the Holy Spirit, a complete abandonment of the eternal Trinitarian plan of redemption. There would then have been no cross, no sacrifice for sin, no resurrection, no crown. And you and I would still be dead in our sins and without a Savior. Jesus knew perfectly well what he was doing. He even knew uh, the uh, the future tribulations that that church in Smyrna was about to endure, and he even tells them about it. He says, "The devil, verse 10, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Our sovereign Lord rules over all things, even the devil, meaning the devil does nothing outside of the plan of God. And not by bare permission, but out of God's sovereign plan. That's so mysterious to us. But uh, it's certainly true that Satan, doubtless, had hoped to sift those saints like we. He desired to destroy them and to cause them to crumble and to fall and to pressure them into denying Christ. Nothing would have made him happier than to see the Christians bowing to the emperor and how that would have pierced the heart of Jesus for them to have done that. But God, you see, had an overriding purpose as well as a plan for those saints in Shmurna. The, the plans of the Lord, the foil, uh, the Lord foils the plans of the nation and he thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33 again. And in this case, he reveals his purposes uh, for the saints to make uh, made for them to suffer, but uh, for a defined, a very defined, uh, limited period, please notice ten days, so that they might be refined like uh, gold and purified in the furnace of affliction, that the fires of affliction might purge their faith and strengthen their character for his own glory and for the ultimate good of his people. For, as James uncomfortably reminds us, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness that you may be made perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Brethren, it's the purpose and business and challenge of every Christian who suffers in this life to look beyond the trial and the pain, regardless of what they may be, whether it's some persecution in this life or, or, um, or something, perhaps simply the, the misery of indwelling sin in a sinful fallen world. It is ever our business to try to see God's uh, purposes uh, and... and and understand something of it. And, and in the case that we, whether we understand his purposes or not, to, at least to discover how it might serve uh, to, to profit us and to glorify him. Uh, God's purposes for the tribulation of the church of Smyrna, at least uh, so far as we're told, was that they might be tested, that they might be proved. Proved before the church, before their own eyes, before all the world to see and for all the ages uh, to read about. And that God might be honored, and and that um, His faithful, unflinching, His faithful, servants might press on. So, God uh, shows us in this text that He is always sufficient. But also, He shows us that uh, He who rewarded His own victorious sons is loaded with rewards also for His enduring people. And that's my second and last point about the spoils. Of victory, um, For our Lord speaks here, as he does so often throughout the scriptures, of spoils or of rewards reserved for those who persevere, believers in this life. Uh, verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the image there um, that he has given, that would surely have come to the mind of the Shmurnians, Um, would have been uh, that crown that was typically awarded to a victorious athlete. For there was in Smyrna apparently, a very great amphitheater where athletic contests were frequently held and where the victor would stand in a high place and receive a leafy crown to be seen and honored by the rulers and the governors of the city and all those who came to witness the event. So, it's really a very evocative image that ought to remind us um, that, uh, that uh, we are all in a race. We're running a race in life. And it's hard enough with or without persecution. And may I say, uh, especially to those who are older in the congregation, that, that this race, like any race, doesn't become easier but harder with every passing mile. We start out fresh and strong and young, but by the end we grow weary. And the finish line is never at the bottom of the hill, but always at the top. And very often we come to it only after we've passed through fiery trials and deep waters, and sometimes it feels like uphill all the way, and the hardest part is at the end. But it's the one who conquers. The one who perseveres, the one who doesn't cave in um, to his own sin or the sins of others, who doesn't despair, who doesn't give up on his or her faith, but daily finds grace in the Savior, resting on Christ, faithful to the end. For, as we read in verse 11, the one who conquers, the one who finishes the race, will not be hurt by the second death. That's the second part of the spoils of victory, the crown of life and one who will not be hurt by the second death. The second death refers as a reference to, uh, to the judgment and death of an unbeliever. Um, the second death is the death of someone who one way or another uh, denies Christ or, or never confesses Christ, who recants, especially one who bows down his heart to the devil, one who, who gives up, who turns away in unbelief, who, in faithless apostasy, whose heart and soul is cast into the lake of fire at the second coming of Christ. Now, no one escapes the first death, but for the Christian who's saved, born again, who faithfully follows Christ, his soul will never be harmed. He, she will pass into the blessed presence of Christ and, and yes, if we're true to Christ and to our faith, if we hold on to what we believe and are taught in the Scriptures, yes, we shall suffer. And in some, places, some, some, in some places, some more than others. In this world, our Lord assures us, you shall have tribulation, but rejoice, for I have overcome the world. Christ overcame as the living one who died and came to life. And we shall overcome in Christ Precisely because we are in Christ, we are united to Christ and drawing on his strength and living out of his grace and through his love and sharing in his blessings and sharing in his honor. Brothers and sisters, purpose in your hearts this evening to be faithful, come what may, and fear not, for you know You know who he is. He's Alpha and Omega, the changeless one, the God who keeps his unconditional loving covenant with his elect. And you know that he sees everything and orders everything for his own glory and for the eternal good of his people. And you know that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, for he has laid up for you a crown of life. Be ye faithful. And if you've never confessed Christ, or if you're not really sure if you confess Christ, then, then ask him. Now's the time. Ask him now. Say, Lord, won't you save me? Won't you be my Savior? The Lord Jesus never turned his back on anyone. But he who has ears to hear, hear what the church says to the churches. Lord God, we thank you for these words of encouragement. That regardless of our situation in this life, whether we be uh, subject to... Great persecution are only those persecutions which are common to all men. Lord, uh, we uh, pray that in all of that, we might know the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he, what he knows, that he knows and, and orders all things. And that, Lord God, you would lead us to be faithful in things small and great, and that we might see clearly in our eyes the crown of life and the promise of eternity with you in heaven. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters again who are suffering greatly for their faith, who are greatly disadvantaged. We pray that you would give them strength uh, to stand firm. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to 604, I think this is a good hymn to sing at this point. Rejoice.